brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Coming in hot, Higher Side Chatters, from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and while we might talk about false flags, deceptive marketing, screen addiction, chemtrails, unhealthy food, the various players of the Capstone Cabal, or the Rockefeller Rothschild debt-based system of rule, there are few factors as impactful on a society as its education system. Because it's our access to knowledge and how we think about thinking that determines whether or not we'll drink the system's Kool-Aid or get caught in its many traps. It's our discernment, reasoning, and logic that either lets us know to read between the lines of our corrupt system or the lack of these skills that has one waiting in line to cast a vote for Joe Biden. It's even this foundation that determines if we ever really find our true will or if we get caught up in a meaningless cog-in-the-wheel job for the megacorporations that would rather suck out your potential than have it realized. That, dear people, is why the Empire has put so much effort into controlling the youth, dumbing us down, building a pipeline of obedient workers, and as today's guest John Kleisick puts it, teaching us what to think rather than how to think. Well, we've talked about the education system before, and if you thought it couldn't get any worse, you are wrong. Because what John's new book, School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education, does is build on that background of great education advocates like Charlotte Iserbeet and John Taylor Gatto, and breaks down the next stages of the schooling system's master plan. If you don't know John, he has a Master of Arts in English and has taught college rhetoric and research argumentation for over seven years. His literary scholarship concentrates on the history of global eugenics and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. He's also a contributor to the Center of Research on Globalism and several alternative news websites. But that is not all, folks. John also holds a black belt in classic Taekwondo and is a certified Muay Thai kickboxing instructor. And with that, class is in session, so let's get into it. Here he is, the technocracy-resisting teacher, the school world order exposer, and a passionate advocate for what's left of our children's minds. John, welcome to the higher side. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me, man. That was a great introduction. (laughs) Thanks, man. I try. And I have been looking forward to this ever since Chris Milligan mentioned your book as one of the new releases from Trine Day when I talked to him last year. 
Now that I've read the book, it's definitely impressive. It's a pretty ironclad case for some scary applications of technology into the classroom. Everything is sourced, and the endnotes are pretty much a book on their own. And it seems like you've outlined the next phase of the agenda as well as anyone could. I guess to kick this off, tell us about the creation of the book. You're definitely in good company with some of the other Try and Day authors that you source. Yeah, yeah. So... Well, it kind of started off kind of haphazardly. It just kind of came about. Education was not necessarily something that I had planned on writing about because that's where I work. I didn't want to you know, necessarily poo-poo where I sleep, so to speak. Right. But at the time, when I wrote one of the first articles that became one of the first chapters of the book, I'm in Illinois, and Governor Bruce Rauner was basically stalling on the budget. And what was happening was, since he wasn't passing the budget, we couldn't get funding for education. And essentially what I saw was a scheme to bankrupt public education and to thereby fill it up with privatized education. And Rauner himself is a big proponent of what they call school choice. It's a euphemism for corporatization of schooling through charter schools and other things like that that we'll break down later. He actually owns his own charter school as well. So what I saw happening there made its way to my front door and one of my departments actually got shut down. And so, you know, it just started off kind of like, well, let me just write about this. If, you know, maybe education is going in this direction. And I had plugged some of the research of Charlotte Thompson Iserby in the article. I had also noticed that Bruce Rauner was big on a lot of buzzwords that Charlotte warned about for many years. So one of them was school choice. And she said it's a euphemism for the corporatization of schooling through charter schools vouchers, education savings accounts, tax credits for tuition, and things like that. The other one is he used the phrase called cradle to career, which is a euphemism for workforce training. It's to replace academics with workforce training. And so I saw those things kind of going down and, you know, I saw the the economic situation. I kind of put it all together in this piece. And Charlotte actually ended up writing me. I guess she read it. It was on News with Views. And at first, I'm looking at the email and thinking, like, oh, this has got to be a virus or a scan. This can't be her. I, I, For whatever reason, I couldn't find her email. I wanted to send it to her, and I couldn't find it. I'm not that good at social media stuff. I'm getting better. I'm learning. And so she reached out to me, and we just became friends ever since. She helped me with, you know, encouraging me, also just partnering with me, sending me research all the time, sending me articles all the time. It was funny. A lot of times, it would be like, I'm working on something that I hadn't mentioned, and she would send me something that plugged right into it. At the same time, I was also reading Anthony Sutton's Introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones, America's Secret Establishment. And at the time, I'd known that Skull and Bones were influential in World War II and things like that. I didn't know that they were very influential in education. Actually, the first chapter in that book is all about, it's called How the Order Controls Education. And I saw basically the implementation of Hegelianism at work in this problem-reaction-solution scenario, okay? So the the Skull and Bones is one of these organizations that basically promoted Hegelianism in America, the philosophy of Hegelianism. And one of those tenets of Hegelianism was basically that history progresses through ideas, ideas that conflict, okay? You call one idea, the main idea of the time is the thesis, the opposing ideas usually are called the antithesis, okay? These two different opposing ideas, they clash, and then through this clash or this conflict comes a synthesis, right? In the colloquial world, we might know this as problem, reaction, solution. So you create the problem, 
elicit a reaction and therefore you can bring in the solution. And this is kind of what I saw happening with the bankruptcy of public education, creating that crisis to basically offer privatization as the solution. So it fit right in. And come to find out, though, as I'm writing it, actually, the reason that Anthony Sutton actually even wrote that book or knew anything about the Order of Skull and Bones is because he got that information from Charlotte Iserby. Her father and her grandfather were both bonesmen. And she basically leaked to Sutton the black books. And the black books are these address books that all bonesmen get after they graduate. So you should understand that, you know, Skull and Bones is a senior society, which means that it's not a freshman society, meaning it's not meant to socialize or fraternize on campus during the years of your education. It's meant to socialize or create social relationships as you leave college. And those are relationships with a lot of old money families. You got stuff like the Vanderbilts, the Whitney's, the Cabot's. And then you got others recognizable like Rockefeller, but that's kind of more of a new money family. But these old money families and then later new money families, through those address books, they basically have a network to consolidate their businesses and things like that. So when you get the address books, it doesn't just have the people's names. It also has, you know, what is their profession and things like that. So are you looking for a lawyer? Are you looking for a financier? Are you looking for somebody that's in the mining industry? Okay. And to make sure you network in the proper circles. So she gave these books to Sutton and Sutton basically, he had realized what he had a problem figuring out when he wrote some academic tomes called Western Technology and Soviet Economic Development. It's a three volume series that he wrote when he was at Stanford, the Hoover Institute. And basically he was looking at how the West, US in particular, influenced the development, the industrial and technological development of Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution and also during the Cold War. And it never made sense to him because he figured, right, if we're at war with these people, why are we helping them? And from his research, basically, it shows that, you know, they largely wouldn't have been able to build up without us. So he basically created the enemy. And it never made sense to him until he picked up and looked at those names in the Order of Skull and Bones, because what he found was names that correlated with certain banks and other industries that financed the Soviet Union. So one of them would have been the Ruskin Bank. And I think Guarantee Trust is one of them. I know Guarantee Trust was involved in funding the Nazis. It might have been both. I might be skewing that fact as I speak. <laughs> it's a tangled web. It's a very tangled <laughs> web. <laughs> the precise documentation's in the book. Right. It's about an almost 500-page book. It's 350 pages of reading. The rest of it is citations. Those are the, the actual bibliography. Those are all government sources journals, you know, mainstream news and, you know, things like that that's accepted as credible in mainstream academia. But what Sutton found basically was that the order was this, you could put it over all these weird things that shouldn't make sense in these seeming contradictions in the world of geopolitics. But if you lay the order of skull and bones over it with a philosophy of Hegelianism, problem, reaction, solution, it all made sense. I'm figuring all these connections as I'm writing it and as I'm coming in contact with Charlotte that Chris Milligan, my publisher at Trine Day, I stumbled on an interview with him on the Opperman Report, and he's the one that published Sutton's America's Secret Establishment. He republished it. It was published prior to that, uh, and there was all kinds of mercantile games and censorship that they kept it off of a lot of bookshelves. And then it basically went out of print, and Chris was like, we have to save this. And 
So they republished that, and then him and Chris basically became research partners, and they wrote another book called Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, which is an excellent tome on not just Sutton's work, but a compendium of other authors such as Webster Tarpley and people like that. You know, if it's something you want to research, it came in really handy for me because not only did he have all the names of all the people in the black books and who they're basically associated with, all the address names, but he had them listed in alphabetical order and also by year. So, you know, depending on what you're looking for, you know, like I dug through these and looked at them name for name over several days, you know, that comes in handy. But I found that. And so I figured that I asked Charlotte to forward the request to Chris to kind of publish what I had going together. And it kind of worked out that what I was writing and what I've written has basically been right next to, you know, the original sources, you know, so it's, as you mentioned, based largely on Sutton's works and Charlotte Iserby's Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. So yeah, that's how it kind of came about. And, you know, I like to think that I'm carrying the torch of all the great work that those three have done and standing on their shoulders. Yes. Yes. Great company you're in. And I think it's a really smart application of this research because, of course, people know as we get older, we sometimes aren't as clued in on new technology and the things that are happening to younger generations. And that is basically where your book picks up. I mean, it's got the history in there, but it's really this latest phase, the technological application of these philosophies, this Halian philosophy in the school system. And uh, it's it's scary and it's pretty impactful. And so sometimes in conspiracy culture, we talk about agendas and players long after their influence has waned. Sometimes we make our own boogeymen after their power is kind of fizzled out. But we do see agents of Skull and Bones working on this technocratic phase of education even today, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So today, if I could give a little background. Yes, um, please. Because the main person I can refer to now is Mnuchin, Skull and Bones Treasury Secretary. Okay. His is kind of indirect because what he's done is he helped a lot with Trump's tax cuts, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which some people call the Tax Cuts and Robots Act because there's something called the Full and Immediate Expensing Clause, which basically works like this. Okay. When you buy new equipment, as a business, okay, that equipment will depreciate over time, and over time you can write off that depreciation. The full and immediate expensing clause enables you in the coming years, if you buy new equipment, you can write off full depreciation that first year. So basically, what a lot of economists have looked at suggests that what it will do is incentivize automation because you can basically buy, you know, for however many millions of dollars this robot or this software program that can automate a bunch of your labor. And although it would cost more than it would to pay your labor force for that year, you're going to get all that money back at the end. And then you're going to basically cut out all that labor expenditure from there forth. That would play into the education because it would obviously right incentivize the automation of some of these, what they call adaptive learning software, which are based on the Skinner box. Okay. BF Skinner's teaching machine, which is based on psychological conditioning principles of behaviorism, in particular operant conditioning, which is a progression of behaviorism. But it all goes back to this stuff called stimulus response conditioning, which came from the father 
of psychology as a laboratory science named Wilhelm Wundt. And this would basically back us all the way up to the point where I was going to start instead of backing up to. So there was a psychology starts with Wilhelm Wundt. And basically, before that, psychology was a discipline of philosophy. And so, you know, it largely meant studying the, the soul or the psyche. Okay. But, you know, Wundt basically took an empirical approach as you're never going to be able to measure that thing. So what you're going to do is we can sort of measure whatever the essence of a person is based on their behaviors. And we can reshape that essence by reshaping their behaviors. And we reshape their behaviors based on the social environment. So behaviors are responses to your environment. The environment is broken down into different what he called stimuli. And then you have responses to those stimuli. Okay. Basically, this is the beginning of stuff like Pavlov's dog with classical conditioning. Right? And if, you know, people don't remember that story. It's basically, right, you can condition associations between unnatural stimuli by associating them with natural stimuli. And then you transfer whatever is the response to the natural stimuli to the unnatural. So Pavlov demonstrated that a natural stimuli of food would make a dog salivate. If you rang a bell, it would then associate the bell with the food. Eventually, you could ring the bell without the food. And since the dog associated the bell with the food, it would salivate. And so this basically becomes the principle for education. It's transferred over to the American university system, the American education system, by this guy, Daniel Coit Gilman, and then two others, Andrew Dixon White and Timothy Dwight. These three are what Sutton refers to as the troika of skull and bones. They helped to set up the early university system. That is, they set up Gilman in particular was the first president of Johns Hopkins University, Cornell, and Cal Berkeley. They set those three up together. Maybe one of those is the president. I might have scrambled some of those details there. But they all basically promote not just Hegelianism, but Wundtian stimulus response psychology. Okay. Basically, that is carried on later. It gets passed down. From G. Stanley Hall, who Gilman hires at Johns Hopkins University, he passes it down to John Dewey, who basically pushes it at the University of Chicago and Columbia University. He has a student, John B. Watson, who basically comes up with this thing called behaviorism, also applies it to advertising. And then there's also E.L. Thorndike, who comes out of the same tradition, the same school at Columbia University. E.L. Thorndike is the guy that popularizes what he called the puzzle box experiments. This is the beginning of putting rats in mazes and things, and there's some objective that you want it to get, and you're going to condition it to get that objective based on not just a vague association between a single stimulus and a response, but through a series of punishments and rewards, associating punishment and reward with the stimulus or the response. B.F. Skinner picks that up. And he applies it to the modern computer. Back then, it was the teaching machine. Okay, He just added some other quadrants to the punishment reward system. And then he basically suggested that he literally said he could make a pigeon a high achiever on the proper schedule. Mm. So he comes up with the teaching machine. And this is pushed by Skull and Bonesman McGeorge Bundy. So Gilman, Dwight, and White pass it down to McGeorge Bundy. This is around the 60s. The teaching machine, which for B.F. Skinner was this analog thing, like you can look at Smithsonian website and see pictures of it. It's kind of like the old Viewmasters, if you remember the Viewmaster thing, right? They used to get these little discs and they had pictures of Disney scenes or whatever cartoon on it. You put it in these goggles and you hold the goggles up to your face and then you pull this slide and it rotates the disc and you see a different picture every time. 
well, put on that disc questions that you have to answer, and then you can only go one way with the rotation. So as you go through, you'd answer these questions that are the stimulus, your answer is the response, and then actually some of these machines would have chocolate and things that they would dispense if you got right answers, you know, so reward, punishment, or, or lack of reward. And so he figured that this was a way that you could teach people. Well, you just take that, you remove all the analog stuff like the gears and the wheels and all that, and you just make it digital and you turn those into windows on a computer screen. And that's your modern teaching computer, which is called the adaptive learning software, which runs on the stimulus response psychological conditioning principle that can be promoted through Mnuchin's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. (laughs) Damn, that is a whirlwind, but that really is the the background, the history of education. And we can see these behaviorist techniques applied to school pretty easily using the bells uh, as Pavlovian training, conditioning us for a life of clock in, clock out, watching the country slowly drift lower and lower across the educational categories. And this idea of workforce training, we often think of it as uh, something from back in the day of uh, like the assembly line, you know, teaching people, just listen for that work whistle, go to lunch, and then come back for another four hours of screwing this bolt onto this piece of metal. It's not like we have assembly lines anymore necessarily, but it definitely seems like this idea of workforce training is just masked as education. And this isn't necessarily new. It's just kind of a, a new application of this old behaviorist thinking. Is that fair to say? Yeah, actually, you know, I could segue to some of the other points, which an analog would be the assembly line on like sort of a factory production system. Well, they have a, you know, a new pedagogy, it's a fancy word for teaching philosophy, called career pathways. So basically, instead of having the liberal arts academic tradition of learning, you know, the trivium and the quadrivium, the three language arts and the traditional math and science arts, you would basically get put on a career path that's based on a predetermined job that you're going to work. And this goes with a philosophy called competency-based education or outcomes-based education. They're basically flip sides of the same coin or different versions of each other. So outcomes-based education says that we teach people based on predetermined outcomes, okay? So basically, we have an outcome that we want the student to reach prior to that, and then that usually means a particular job or particular set of job skills. Well, as you mentioned, right, that old whistle system, which, you know, the analog is the bell system, you know, that goes to what was called Taylorism. So this guy, Taylor, back in the industrial period, basically took the scientific method He broke it down to make people not just make the assembly line more efficient, but actually get more labor out of people and to compartmentalize what you're doing. And so that just gets transferred to the career path. So you only have to learn enough to perform your job and nothing more beyond that. Okay. And this is the competency-based part. So you have a particular outcome, which is for a particular industry that they predetermine you are suitable for. And then you're only going to be taught to be just competent enough to do that job. And they're not going to give you anything else outside of that because, you know, that would make things not run as smoothly, right? You might be not happy pulling your lever or pushing your button or clicking your keyboard or whatever. You might have higher aspirations and higher thoughts. So yeah, it fits right into that. They refer to it as a conveyor belt system in the uh, the Harlem Children's Zone. It's a big charter school system. Mm. Mm. Man, this is all such great info. And 
It's funny how if we're looking at the previous age, we would say that the state shouldn't control education, that the government shouldn't be able to take our kids and force them to be in the school system eight hours a day until adulthood. But now, I mean, it's looking like the better option compared to privatizing it for technocratic corporate control. I guess talk to us about how this should concern us, this pivot and how these corporations are weaseling into education, because it seems like, you know, we just you gave the background and it's like, well, the state shouldn't control this, but I guess it's the lesser of two evils in a sense. Yeah. So there's a couple things there. Like, so how do the corporations get in is one question, because I do advocate for basically saving the public education system, right, or defending it, right? But I do look at, right, the history of compulsory education, which was also set up by Skull and Bones. That's Alfonso Taft at Antioch College, Horace Mann, and people like that, based on Fichtean and Hegelian philosophy. And you're right, you know, there is that what the state controls will be, you know, used for the state's benefit. But, you know, there's different philosophies about what is the public sector versus the state, right? And I don't just say that flippantly. Like, you know, Jürgen Habermas would say something like the public is actually separate from both the state and the private, right? It would be something like the commons. I'm not saying that, you know, we can necessarily get that far back to that type of a public education system. But ultimately, my solution is local control at some level. And that requires some sort of a public sphere. Now, you know, do you want to use Habermas's commons definition or something that has a closer relationship to what we would traditionally call state apparatus, you know, at either level, that is the scenario where the individual person, the individual citizen has the most control over the curriculum and what their kids learn. So, you know, that's why that needs to be preserved in some state and protected from the corporatization. So the corporatization, as we mentioned, well, there's two layers to that. We talked about the first one first, which is actually the privatization of the schools themselves. This means turning them into charter schools, which are basically public-private. It's different from just a private school where you know you pay your own cash and then it's separate from the government scenario. The corporatization of schooling means you have a private company that takes government tax dollars to subsidize it. And then the students or the parents also pay a tuition. So it's both of those combined. This is essentially what I would call fascism. This is what Charlotte called it when she was at the Department of Education and she saw Reagan's private sector initiative. And you know she says people looked at her and kind of said, oh, we didn't think about it like it was fascism, Charlotte. But I don't know how else you could think about it because, you know, I mean, using Mussolini's term, I, I know that people have said it's apocryphal, but it's come to be used ubiquitously for largely what we refer to when we talk about fascism, minus the ethnic part and the nationalist part, which is it's the merger of the government and the corporate sector. And that's neither public nor private. So you don't have rights as a citizen and you don't have any rights to tell the company what to do unless you're employed there. And then you still are, right? You don't have rights like a citizen there either. Okay. So that happens through the charter schools, but it also happens through the voucher system. And so that means basically what they're doing is you can get a voucher and then you can take that voucher. So the government's going to give you some money, usually federal, sometimes they have state vouchers, and they're going to give you this money and you're going to take that money to pay for tuition wherever you want to go if you want to take your child out of the public school system. Okay, but with that voucher then means that that private school, let's say it was a parochial school, right? It could have been a, an old religious school, Catholic school or something. 
right? When they start taking that voucher money, they got federal money, they're subject to federal jurisdiction. So now, you know, if you took your children there to get out of the public school system or out of, better said, the government school system, you're not. Because by taking the voucher, the federal money there, you're taking the federal policies with it. Down the road, this has more pernicious effects in the sense that it can basically destroy the public governance of education because charter schools, just like any company, right? They're subject to the corporate council. There is no elected body for a charter school. There's no elected school board. So essentially it will get rid of elected school boards. Uh, there's a guy, his name is uh, Reed Hastings. He did this, was it a TED talk? I think it was a TED talk. He does a big presentation on what he calls self-perpetuating governance. And this is the model that's used for charter schools. And he funds charter schools, all kinds of charter schools. He sat on a charter school board in California. And he said it's better than elected school boards because elected school boards are messy because, you know, you got people disagreeing. And then, you know, if you finally got somebody good in for four years, they might vote them out for some reason. And then you got to start all over. He said, hey, it's better to self-perpetuate the policy so you can keep moving forward with whatever progress you're making. So this public-private merger of the corporate sector and the private sector in education also takes the form of, I guess it would look more like the communist version as opposed to the fascist version, but they're still public-private. It's still the merger of government and business. And those are what are called community schools, okay, or full-service community schools. And those have to actually have mental health components and criminal justice components, according to the Every Student Succeeds Act. If you want to get grants from the federal government under the Every Student Succeeds Act, which replaced the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of uh, 1960. So it's the main federal law overseeing public education. You have to have those components in your community school. They don't have to only be facilitated through the federal level. At the state level, you have these things called P-16 or P-20 councils. And basically, these are state-level councils that have legal stipulations for the same connections between education, mental health, and criminal justice. The P-16 refers to pre-education or preschool up to age 16, and then they started adding the 20, right? So that means after you've graduated your traditional high school education, which means it's into your adulthood. And this parallels with something called the United Nations Lifelong Learning Pedagogy. And funny enough, if you look in the UK, they have something that parallels that called the post-16 skills. And so basically what you're seeing then is right at the state and federal levels, globally, you have these different versions of what are called the UN's lifelong learning policies, which is going to mix together international standards through public-private partnerships largely ran by private companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Just... So much information, and we can definitely see how a publicly elected school board is way better than these P-16, P-20 corporate-controlled councils. And it's like, you know, despite everything they tried to set up with education initially, the human factor still survived. We all had inspirational teachers in an uninspired system. And it's like what's going on now is a new phase of refinement of the same old control agenda. They just have better tools now. And it's like they're eliminating that human factor. They're eliminating the 
local school boards who might be altruistic and actually care about their kids' education. And if you can put it right into the hands of the corporations, it's just such a dirty trick. And it's going to be a lot more cold, calculated, and effective to get that agenda through. Like you said, you take the government money, now you're subject to government control. And who is in these government positions, well, it's the agents of the corporations because it's the same old revolving door that we see in GMOs or the FDA or the EPA. It's like you get the corporations in there with the agencies that are supposed to police these sectors of society, and then you get the full-on corporate rollout. And it's just crazy that I don't hear that many people talking about it in schooling, but you're nailing it, man. Yeah, I should have added too, there's another angle is that so, you know, you're essentially then subsidizing not just the private corporate schools, you're also subsidizing the larger private industry that funnels into those career pathways. So through these career pathways, they also usually have not just, hey, we're going to predetermine based on your psychometric and your biometric algorithms that you are only suitable for job A, B, or C. It's not just that, but it's you are suitable for this particular company based on what is in demand for industry in your local area. Okay, so another part of removing the elected school boards is regional governance. So through these different P20s, right, you don't only have the removal of the local elected school board, but you start to regionalize things. You start to regionally plan how the various schools in that region are going to coordinate each other's curriculums based on the larger industries in those regions. And those are basically going to be pumped into not your small mom and pop business. These are going to be the large, you know, multinational chains. So you're also subsidizing their workforce training. You're paying for them what they should be paying for their own in-house training for their own workers. You're doing that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It really is the same old philosophy that the elite carry, which is this top-down empirical management, this idea that well, they need us to do what we're doing. Otherwise, it would just be chaos out there. They need our guidance. They need our systems. And we need to micromanage every little aspect of their lives, not only for our own profits, but because people are stupid and uh, you know they, they don't do what we want them to do. And it's just, it's the same backwards thinking, this, this elitism that we really just need to get away from. Yeah. And another thing about that is that, you know, Hegel, another part of Hegel's philosophy was that he literally said that the state is God marching on earth. So for Hegel, he's basically a pantheist, right? They say it would say panantheist. So they would say that a lot of people would say, well, there was a a layer to a transcendent being, but largely God is coming down into all the contradictions, right? And for him, God was also reason and logos, not in the way that I would use it or the classical philosophers would use it. But in more of a pantheist sense that through these contradictions, right, because in formal logic, you know, the contradictions can't exist. But for Hegel, truth came through contradictions. It's through that. And so the state was a perfect merger of whatever contradictions you had in the different spheres of the society, you know, whether it be, you know, the social stratification or caste system or whatever. So in that sense, he said that the state is God marching on Earth because it is basically the physical the material and energy manifestation of that transcendent thing through these different forces working together on this plane here and this material plane. And another part of that though meant that he had this slave master concept where, okay, so that would be an example of contradictions or these opposing forces. But 
Hegel basically saw it as like this union that the slave and the master were somehow part of this yin and yang and they benefited from each other, right? Despite what the slave might tell you from his own perspective, right? Yeah. So in those two elements of his philosophy, the, the state is God. And then you just, when you merge the state with the corporate, you can also say that the corporations are God and that, you know, your workforce slaves, that they're supposed to be there, that it's a nice, neat little unity and like you said, it's good for society because it keeps everything running smoothly. And, you know, if you just give liberty and let everybody, you know, have their own transcendent logos, basically that's going to cause chaos and society will crumble. So we have to control it in that way. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yes. The dynamic of slave master and how their philosophy as well. It's beneficial for the slave. People want to be controlled. Exactly the kind of thing I was talking about. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about who's responsible for some of this stuff today. We hear the Gates Foundation so often, but we have other players and other tangled webs of nefarious connections. What concerns you most? What players are the ones we should be watching out for today? People like Betsy DeVos, I would assume. Yeah, a lot of the key companies that are pushing a lot of the technologies it might not be some of the most well-known but certainly betsy devos is one because not only is she right the secretary of education but she has a lot of shares and was once sitting on the board of a company called neurocorp this is a biofeedback company that basically also works with these digital therapies for adhd okay and this is a host of other companies that are in this field called Social emotional learning, okay? And we can expand on that at another time. But other companies that I would say are important contemporarily would be like IBM, okay? And it's got the Watson. If you haven't seen commercials for this, if you look at commercials, it's essentially an AI program, but it does everything from finance to security to education, okay? And it partners with Pearson. That's another one, a big one, Pearson Education. Facebook. Facebook is another one. Uh, Facebook is developing virtual reality and augmented reality technologies. Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's brain-computer interface company, which I know that it's got the prototypes ready, but I had heard a story that he's saying it should be commercially viable by the end of this year. So it's not just, right, first he mentioned it on Joe Rogan. Then he showed you, he did this presentation and he showed you the actual device hooked up to this giant computer that sticks it in your head. And now he's saying that I guess you're going to be able to buy one by the end of this year. It's basically a brain chip is a simpler way to say it. Others that would be important would be like the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation is a nonprofit organization. You know, it's based on the Microsoft fortune. And by the way, Microsoft is another company that fits in here. Gates Foundation, I mean, every chapter, basically, the Gates Foundation, I went through their grants. You know, I went through them individually and looked for anything related to school choice, vouchers, adaptive learning software, P20 councils, school to work, all these things. And they've got tons of grants. So every chapter, you'll find something about the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation, what they do is essentially, it's another step in the history of how this whole thing came about, which is through nonprofit organizations basically funding not just the school system itself and compulsory education, but in particular the stimulus response, pedagogy, and the workforce training methodology. And some of these institutions include the Rockefeller Foundation. Before he came up with this Rockefeller Foundation, he has several different philanthropies besides that. 
The first one was the General Education Board. And the General Education Board, one of the people that sat on that was Daniel Coit Gilman. Okay. And then also it should be noted that Percy Rockefeller is a bonesman. Okay. So both Gilman and Rockefeller are essentially bonesman families, and both of them are involved in the nonprofit funding of all this stuff. That torch kind of gets passed to the Gates Foundation. I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation still does a lot. The General Education Board is no longer functioning. But the Gates Foundation really, at least in the public eye, is really taken up the mantle of nonprofit funding. I should also mention the Ford Foundation is another one. And another bonesman associated with the Ford Foundation is oh, Howard uh, Harold Howe. There it goes. I kept wanting to say Howard Hughes. And I'm like, that's not him. Harold Howe. Harold Howe II. Man. Man, so much stuff, and it really is concerning. Even just online schools, it's a simple way to remove the human component, remove the teacher completely, and it is all going this crazy way. And the more you can get kids to adopt these technologies in the classroom because they must, the more you can push transhumanist-type agendas. I mean, not to mention just the simple fact that I don't want my kids on an iPad in school because of the screen addiction, the way it rewires your brain chemistry for more efficient marketing, and the increased EMF exposure. I mean, should 50 kids in a classroom have these uh, iPads, you know, right over their reproductive systems? I'm not so sure they should. And, you know, what can you do to get out of it? And that's the thing. So as we're wrapping this up, I have heard you talk about the book before and other interviews and how you were going to end it with this transhumanist stuff that we were just talking about. And Chris is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you, you can't just, uh, you can't just destroy a person's faith in, in the future. I mean, you got to give them some hope. And so just uh, as you did in the book, we should naturally end with some kind of solutions to this crazy nightmare. What would you advise people? I mean, you are a teacher, you're on the inside if there's parents listening, what would you say to them that they should even uh, put their attention to or even fight for? Okay, cool. So the solutions I broke down into like one, two, three, four, five, I should put numbers, there. five point <laughs> simplified as much as possible program. Okay. Let me give the overview of them first and then I'll do the details on each of them. I ran out of time on the Opperman report, but I did this. <laughs> so I'm going to do it differently this time, which is okay. The first one is Maintain public control and local control means to save your elected school boards. Okay. The second part is to abolish the psychological conditioning method in the classroom. That means not just the cell technologies and all the high tech stuff, but right stuff that you mentioned, right? Like the star and detention punishment reward system or the bell system to compartmentalize. Hey, we're thinking about this topic now when the bell rings, turn that off. And now let's only think about this other subject, that type of stuff. The third component is digital student privacy, which means to either eliminate, ban, or to at least highly restrict the data mining of students. Because I, you know, I'm not a Luddite. Look, we're using this technology right now. If there wasn't for this internet and all this stuff, I would have had a lot harder time writing a book and I wouldn't be able to share it and sell it like I am. So, you know, I'm not saying destroy all technology, you know, ban (laughs) tech. I'm not saying that. But we got to find out if we're going to use it at all. It needs to be ethically. So, you know, I know that this type of tech, you know, it has to do some kind of data gathering just to keep itself updated. You know what I mean? So, I'm, you know, obviously there's a limit there. But when we start talking about personal student data, it needs to be stuff like 
if you're talking about bio data, psychometric data, this should be stuff that's classified as a medical record protected by HIPAA, right? Shouldn't be able to be trading it around and making products off it and, you know, creating policy based on it, okay? To the extent that some of that might have to sieve its way through, uh, to the extent that we want to, you know, use some of these technologies, we should at least have a right to be forgotten. This is a law that certain states are looking at. And we're basically, you know, if you want a company that collects your cookies or you can say, hey, I want you to get rid of that or I don't want this on the web anymore. Now we know that stuff can take its own life once it gets out there. But right, some avenue where, again, locally and individually, we can control our data for ourselves and not have other people using it for profit, things like that. All right, so those those are the first three. And then the last two basically have to do with curriculum. Those first three are more about method, philosophy, and governance. These two are more about curriculum. So I want to go back to the trivium. And the trivium, you know, the classical liberal arts, you know, we could add the quadrivium in there, but I think that the ancients always did the trivium before the quadrivium because the trivium is the study of the word. The quadrivium is the study of the number. So, you know, you have to have quality before quantity. You can't quantify nothingness, right? You, you know, one or two is an abstraction unless you attach it to something like weight, height. The other thing is, you know, most of the world, whether you're a scientist or not, language is the primary mode through which we make our way through society. So the classical trivium method had three parts. Okay, that's grammar, logic, and rhetoric. My book goes into detail about how those are, those terms, whatever you're thinking right now, based on maybe your uh, compulsory American education, might be very simplified or dumbed down versions of what the classical philosophers would have understood by it. Okay, but it's essentially the art of how to think instead of what to think, right? General grammar is the art of basically identifying things, giving them names. And that creates, you know, an inductive process where you can find patterns. Okay, formal logic is basically where we can deduce truth based on what we've observed or what we've named and identified. Okay, and based on formal logic, right, where we can essentially find contradictions in our own thought. If we can find contradictions in our own thought, then we can think for ourselves, right, and we can sift through all the data that's out there now. You, know, you don't necessarily have to have an authority tell you stuff. You know, I should maybe segue to emphasize it's not in the book, but there is no better school of learning than the school of experience. I know that Benjamin Franklin says that it's an expensive school for fools who don't have any other abstract knowledge or training outside of that. But dumping a bunch of information into your head based on your teacher or whatever the syllabus says you need to remember and then just try to, you know, rote memorizing that is not the same thing as having an understanding where you can apply it in your own daily life, right? And it's kind of what you're probably doing right now if you're checking out this podcast. Right? <laughs> so that should be grounded, though, in things like history and civics, not social studies. Okay, Social studies is like this amorphous thing that isn't grounded in any, well, first causes, which is my last point, right? You know, it's a metaphysical curriculum. So, you know, history meaning, right, we should know, right, like the who, what, where, when, and why of how we got here. A lot of the stuff I've talked about, okay, just like what we talked about with eugenics. If you want to know where we're going, and you know, we're all on this river of time and we can't get off it and we're moving forward together and we got to make decisions about how it's going forward. Well, if you want to know where we're going, we have to know where we came from. And if you could graph that on a line, you could see the angle that it's moving towards. And you could see stuff like, hey, this looks like that eugenic stuff from before. I don't think I want to do that. 
Okay. Civics is giving you the specific tools to apply grammar, logic, and rhetoric to actually wade through the public sphere, right? And that means being able to handle yourself, right, at the local school board, understanding your state laws, your local laws, you know, getting out there and being, you know, an active citizen, an activist that understands, you know, how the law works, right? You know, I mean, even, you know, there was once upon a time when there was no bar system, there was no JD. You know, Lincoln went to a law school. I've done pro se stuff in one, you know. So, I mean, you know, learning how the mechanisms of our public system works based on the history of how it came about. Okay, that needs to be grounded in the last principle, which is curriculum of consciousness studies. That basically means metaphysics, okay? So, what I came to find is that, you know, one of the things that's driving the transhumanist agenda here is, you know, empiricism the empirical method and then you know leading into skepticism and then performance identity well the thing with empiricism is that you can only measure so much right even if you get 99.7 accuracy right that's the nature of induction you get a sample you can never measure the total you can only measure the sample so no matter how accurate it is there's always a piece missing so you can never know the absolute truth so that means at that point you have to make a decision do you want to be a pragmatist which leads to performance identity, which leads to transhumanism, which means that there is no truth to your identity. There's nothing grounded to what is a human being. You are no different than a, another corporate material, another commodity that can be manufactured and produced and interfaced with electronic devices. Right? You're no different than that. You're just all that so much smush. You can either take that route when you get to that place where right, your empiricism reaches its limitations, or you can go back to the classical world of metaphysics, right? New Age stuff that gets into all sorts of like supernatural stuff and different layers of deities and platonic forms and stuff. It doesn't have to be that complex. It just means that there are some first principles, some first causes that we need to base our empiricism on so that we don't go into rabid skepticism and performance identity. This means stuff like transcendent values, okay? Like a priori values, meaning like everybody has the right to make their own decisions about how they want to live. A priori, meaning prior to what I measure. I don't have to measure a bunch of people to go, oh, you're deserving of something, but you're not because I didn't measure you. Before I measure any, before I see or observe somebody, I can say, yes, you have value and that you have the right to make your decisions about how you want to live. That's based on stuff like natural law, which comes from these metaphysical terms like the Greeks had the Logos, the Chinese had the Tao, the Hindus had the Urta, you know, later that would become the Dharma and Buddhism. If you go back to the Persians, they had the Asa. And these are all ideas that reality is grounded in truth and that this truth is transcendent and that based on that truth, you can actually know things a priori and that you can deduce things and put things in their proper order. You can have right living. In other words, the golden rule, right? If we were all basically put here by the same principle, right, which puts us in a unified order and none of us ask to be here transcendently we ended up here then we all are on an equal playing ground where we all have the same right to make our own decisions and this is the philosophy that should guide how we're going to play with this technology if we're going to mess with it at all wow man uh that is such a great breakdown of some of the solutions and i'm with you uh there's definitely a lot of logistical infrastructural things like the first few bullet points you mentioned there and then, yes, the last two are the things we really can bring into our kids' lives firsthand. I mean, let's assume there are a lot of parents out there listening who have kids in the grade school pipeline. Now, 
they probably can't do much about that. The kids have to go to school. They're probably working a job, so they can't do a homeschooling situation. Are there specific tools for, say, developing sound metaphysics or trivium tools that are geared for younger children that you know about that people could maybe start implementing at home to offset some of the damage of the public school system? Well, so, you know, I actually want to work on that. I actually want to put something together like that. You know, I've been really re-engineering my own curriculum. You know, in my own academic training, I didn't get all of that. I, I went down the opposite of the classical trivium. The best way I could put it would be a philosophy called deconstructionism. That's largely what I got. And so I had to work my way back to this kind of on my own, using all the things I'm, I'm describing, right? I largely taught myself this based on, you know, digging around Don Urban's Logos Media. And, you know, he's got some good resources you can use. Chris likes Trivium by the Wooden Books is the publisher. There's one by Miriam Joseph that I have. It's a little dense. I think it's a good crash course if you want to just like classical learning and like history of philosophy and metaphysics and stuff like that. There is a guy not in the conspiracy stuff or not that I know of. He teaches high school at a classical school, and he's got these little lectures. His name's Bruce Gore. I love his stuff because it's for a high school class, but it's dense. And so, like, you know, it, like, it's accessible for anybody. I like to, you know, put them on sometimes just when I'm trying to refresh, like, bullet points on a philosopher if I'm foggy. And you can click those and just watch those. He's a Christian guy, you know, so he's going to give you history of religion, too. But, you know, that's important stuff, too. That should be part of what we study. And, you know, we can have a discussion about what are the first causes of these these things like the Tao. You know, C.S. Lewis, you know, referred to it as the Tao. You know, it was Christian. Christians would maybe rather prefer the term Logos. So those are some good online sources you can play with. There's a, I think the Wooden Books is a rather simplified version. And hopefully one of these days, I'm going to put some resources on my website, schoolworldorder.info. And maybe make a book out of it. But yeah. yeah. Can I add something else? Because you mentioned parents, and I should say this too. That another important part of this is that parents need to take care of their kids. Parents need to teach their kids. I don't have kids, so I don't want to lecture parents <laughs> on how to be parents. But that is one of the main things here. Because see, a lot of parents think that, oh, well, the teachers are the experts and so are the administrators. So I can kind of defer. And then if they've got really fancy technology, technology is the smartest stuff in the world, right? Technology is infallible. So if I got experts with technology, I can kind of bow out and let my kid do their own thing. And I don't have to go to the school board meetings and things like that. But that's not, you know, I mean, what you said is what can parents do on their own? Well, what parents can do on their own is instill, what are the values you want your kids to have? Do you have values that you want your kids to have that you don't want other people to replace them with? All right. I hope that they're based on things like the golden rule. You know what I mean? And, you know, the other thing is you see it in the everyday world. Go to the grocery store or something. How often do you see the kids, you know, misbehaving or they're just hyper or something? And they give them the device. They give them the device because it's like, here, get out of my way and go mess with this. Like you're letting the devices and basically the government be the parent and you can't do that. If you can't do that, everything I said doesn't matter. Amen, man. Amen. I really love these subjects because I'm kind of at that stage of life where I'm either going to have kids or I'm not. And probably I am. And so a lot of these things come up and I think about how extreme do I want to go, given the fact that I already have the job I have, so this stuff is going to be in their sphere of influence. And I think you know, 
homeschooling feels like too much pressure. So I also think maybe I should send my kids to a public school because I want them to understand you have to deal with all different kinds of people. And then I can offset that at home with various techniques of my own. I mean, I've routinely said that I think the single most important thing I could teach my kids is to optimize their expression and language so that they can get through a lot of various situations by expressing themselves succinctly and accurately. And this seems kind of similar to the trivium, of course, broken up into grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And even in the book, you say, these are not subjects in the classical sense at all. They're methods of dealing with subjects. And I think that's really wise. I mean, that's really the crux of what I was trying to get to with, with those kind of thoughts is like, I just want to teach my kids how to navigate reality without necessarily taking them out of reality. I don't want to have the weird kid who doesn't know how to communicate with other people because they went to some airy-fairy Southern California school. You know, I mean, there's concerns there. I also don't want them to have to be forced to get certain vaccinations to attend public school. I don't want them to have these technologies in the classroom that are doing active harm regardless of what I teach them at home. So these are real concerns. But I've always kind of thought the best approach is one foot in, one foot out, because if you're all the way out, then, you know, good luck. And if you're all the way in, you're also screwed. And I guess I would also ask you, if you were a parent, what do you think of these things like homeschooling or Montessori schools or these other types of schools that obviously the stuff we're talking about isn't bleeding into them necessarily, but they also seem so far off the reservation that when your kid gets through some of that, they might have a hard time integrating into our general society. They might feel like they were sold some weird fringe ideologies that that don't necessarily mesh that well with the general population. It's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to balance. But what are your thoughts on just other forms of schooling that are not public school, but places we would send our kids? Okay. Yeah. I like what you said. I really think it's a good philosophy. One foot in, one foot out. In other words, like this is the world we live in, right? I mean, like here, one foot in, one foot out right now. You're posting on YouTube and things. I mean, right, right. You're kind of feeding the beast at one level, but we're also, right. We're not, we're talking against the beast. I mean, it's kind of like that. I mean, the wife and I can't have kids. So, but if we could, you know, I think I would largely do what you're saying. And, and I think I would keep in, in public school. You know, could you do homeschooling? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. If you do homeschooling, please be sure that you don't apply for tax credits for tuition or anything like a voucher or education savings accounts. Because as I mentioned, that's largely going to mean that you have to follow the ESSA standards, the federal standards. And if you do that, largely what they're going to do is make you use not just the methods and the outcomes, but down the pipe, it'll be that you have to use the software. You have to use the adaptive learning software. You have to also have some biofeedback stuff, right? So that you have to meet all those requirements. And you know, most homeschools, by the way, doing, they are online and they do incorporate much of the stuff we're talking about. Okay. So at the end of the day, I don't think there's a whole lot difference in terms of curriculum. Right? Unless you were to go totally private or parochial, then it is very different because then you do get classical stuff. You will get formal logic. You will get quadrivium trivium. You will get history of philosophy. You'll get all of that stuff. I don't know a lot about Montessori school. 
you know, my wife has mentioned it before and I just never, it never came up in the research. I don't know what its status is. I think it's a magnet school, but I don't know public, private, what its status is. My only concerns about that would be like the governance issues. But I mean, in terms of curriculum, unless it's a parochial school, you know, like a religious school or a Catholic school or something like that, you're largely going to get pretty much the same curriculum. There's ways where people can, um, there's some flexibility there, but it's largely the same. I should say, you know, the same level, by the way, you know, there are also classical schools that are charter and public private. I haven't looked deeply into those, but I would be suspect of those too, because I imagine that even if they can maintain a lot of the traditional curriculum, they still have to fit in some of the other new methods. And so, you know, with the classical learning, you're probably going to get a lot of social justice type, you know, social studies mixed in with it. I think public school or the homeschool is what I would personally do. And it's, easy to say that when you don't actually have to worry about what's going to happen to the kid. I'm looking at totally academically abstract, you know, in terms of policies and stuff. It's a different game when you got, you know, your little boy or girl and all the emotion attached to it. Yes. Well, I mean, honestly, as scary as it can be, as daunting as it can be to, to kind of weigh all this stuff, a part of me also thinks if you're just thinking about it, you're already so far ahead of most of the people in this society. So even if you're giving it concern, don't let it completely, you know, destroy you. Don't let it depress you. Uh, just realize that you're already ahead of the game, even considering these things and talking with your partner about them. So I don't know, that gives me a little bit of a silver lining, but man. So I just want to add this real quick too, because, you know, like you said, the one foot in, one foot out, whichever option you take, that's the important part, which is you are in charge. You're the parent. So you say, what'd you learn today? And you could say, my dad would tell me stuff like, hey, why didn't they tell you this? Or why didn't they tell you that? He didn't tell you about what we did to the Native Americans, did he? Every day I'd come home, there was something that was like, huh? Like I'm supposed to question what they taught me, right? And so if you at least do that, like you said, another part of that golden rule is we all have the same, you know, I am not one of these precision ed IQ people. I really think that, you know, people have said I'm smart, I really think it's just me being as honest as I can with what I don't know and just say, hey, why don't I know it? And then trying to figure out why I don't know it. And we all have pretty much the same capacity to be honest with ourselves. And in that regard, you are just as important as the professor with the PhD. And I'll tell you how many times, you know, I go to, ver I'll read stuff, you know, and you're, you're synthesizing. I'll go to one of the people at the departments, you know, philosophy department say, hey, is this right? Am I understanding this right? And it'll either check out or it won't. But when I start to then extrapolate out into other topics and make connections, they don't know what I'm talking about. They only know what they've been taught in their specialization. That is the product of any institutional, compulsory, corporate, whatever, any institutional education system. The opposite of that is this trivium method where you think on your own, you ask your own question, you think something, and then you think about what you thought. And you go, does that make sense? Is there a contradiction in what I thought? And you can weed that out and you can instill that spirit in your child, regardless of which system you pick. Boom. I love it. Yes, I agree with you. No stock in eugenics. But even if there was some truth to eugenics, there's always outliers. There's always people who buck the trends. You know, these a lot of times these are, uh, you know, distributions on a on a grand scale. So 
there's no value in teaching people from a base level that they're less valuable than other people. It's obviously better to teach everyone they're the same because this particular person might be one of those outliers, even if there was a basis in truth, which obviously we're saying there isn't. So regardless, it's better to just ignore that stuff or at least actually not ignore it because that's how it creeps in, but be vigilantly against and opposed to some of that kind of stuff. Mm. Awesome. Well, John, this has been super enlightening. We've had several guests talk about how the top layers of the elite are sort of weeding out the middle layers, the management class, the ones who implement the agendas. And instead, they're just going straight to technology to do that because it'll do it way more flawlessly. And this seems to be as true in education as it is anywhere. Uh, and before we go, anything else to tell the people about getting the book, checking out the website or following up on some of this stuff, following what you're going to be working on next? Yeah. So, you know, the website is schoolworldorder.info. There's a link to the book, Trying Day's website. You can get it straight from there. You got an account with Amazon or it's on there. It's on Barnes and Nobles, any of the major distributors. I'm now, it was like two days ago, I made my first social media account, which is a Twitter. So I did my first post <laughs> on there. So if you want to follow me on that, you know, however that works, you can do that. I'll send out my articles. I'm still writing articles. A lot of it's expanding on the book, stuff that didn't make it in there. One of the first things I published was some of the stuff about Jose Delgado, who started the brain computer interfaces, how he's connected to skull and bone. So if you go on my Twitter, that article's there. Maybe that'll give you a taste of, you know, if you want to buy the book, right? And there's excerpts in the website. Oh, the website also, I should mention, it's got 2,000 citations, which is 100 pages of citations. If you're somebody that likes to check citations, if you're going, hey, where did he get that from? While you're reading it, you can open up in the back part of the website, the resources section. And then you can just follow along with the notes. And most of them are online sources, even the journals. Most stuff's online today. You know, there's stuff that's print books. You might have to buy it or something. But you can pretty much link to anything in, in that book, any citations. It's all footnoted if you wanted to check as you go. So that's interactive in that way. Beautiful, beautiful, man. Well, you are a true master of your domain. This is all very much appreciative. I'm uh, in awe. I'm lucky to get any credit for any of this at all, because it's all you, man. But I guess like school, I get credit for a lot of stuff I probably shouldn't. So <laughs> it all makes sense. Um, very cool. Well, keep fighting the good fight and do take care out there. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. It's been a pleasure. It's real fun. And boom goes the dynamite, dear people. School World Order, hell of a book, hell of a topic. John is a hell of a guy. I am definitely happy to have gotten this one out to you next. Of course, it's probably pretty obvious at this point, but this is another interview that was recorded several weeks back when we were still in the old world, but I didn't really feel the need to preempt the show to say that this time because it is a topic that's a little more connected anyway. In fact, John messaged me just the other day about how obviously we didn't talk about this coronavirus thing in the interview, but... So much of it is very relevant to this current technocratic lockdown and the big plan to connect your biometrics to a form of ID. And of course, get them while they're young is always in play. So this is a timely one and it's relevant. It's just weird to think about the fact that when I recorded this, I thought that night I could still take my wife out to dinner. 
I did want to add, though, that John wrote a really great piece, and I think I'm going to link it to you in the show notes, that adds a coronavirus context to everything we talked about today. It's about two pages, but let me just get it started for you. He writes, The Department of Education's new proposed rules for federal regulations of distance education and innovation will effectively open the floodgates for online education corporations to put public brick-and-mortar schools out of business by streamlining adaptive learning and other artificial intelligence technologies that replace human instructors with competency-based education software, which provide direct assessment through subscription-based courseware that data mines students' cognitive behavioral algorithms to personalize digital lessons. Very synergistic with what we talked about today, and it makes sense, right? Now that we're scared to gather in a room together, everything goes online, and every concern raised in today's show comes to fruition that much faster. And it's also fitting that the same people are involved. So this is a pretty great one to me. I love coming back to the education system. We've had some awesome episodes on it, but adding this technocracy context is exactly how to further these conversations. And I even said in the episode that I'd send my kids to public school so that they learn they have to deal with all sorts of people. But as we've navigated the few short weeks since recording, I have to say that my wife and I have changed our minds, most likely. If it's going to be all iPads and metal detectors and vaccines, it's no longer worth it. And when I look into these Montessori or Waldorf schools, even though I run the risk of raising a weirdo kid, the vaccination rate at these schools is like 7%. And they use no electronics in the classroom. So I think about this and the types of parents I would meet, And I'm a lot more comfortable that I'd be entering into a local network of families that are more likely to be like-minded and helpful in a crisis like the one we're having. I think a lot of us have realized lately that we love our friends and family, but it's isolating to be around too many people who don't share our conspiratorial thoughts on something like this. If we're entering a world where people shame each other for gathering together or neighbors start calling the cops on little parties or we start getting harassed or even beaten for not wearing a face mask in public, I think we all feel like we can't just overlook these differences that we have with the people we love when shit is getting as extreme as it's getting. I obviously don't even have kids yet, and I'm not saying I would cut anyone out of my life, not at all. But it's just hard to go on pretending that we can just avoid talking about conspiracy stuff in our friend groups anymore, like we could when it was just some abstract philosophical difference, if that makes any sense. And I guess I'm just retracting what I said in maybe the second hour, where I mentioned that I tend to want to have one foot in and one foot out. Well, that might not apply to this new reality where they need a pound of flesh for you to participate in their systems. It's getting too expensive for me. And I'm trying not to speak in such absolute terms. I never want to be overly dramatic, like this is going to last forever and we're all screwed. I don't know. I don't know anything more than you do. But a lot of us feel like we've lived a life of overhyped cable news bullshit 
We've heard little conspiratorial, fear-based sagas like Jade Helm. So our first reaction should be to be skeptical. But this got real a lot faster than I think any of us realized. And so now we have to hold both ideas in our head. Is this just another hysteria fake-out situation, or are they really making a play this time? But either way, John really killed it today. His book is great, and he's a teacher, so he's used to speaking at length. But man, I wish I had his energy level. I'm just not wound that way. But I'm also not surprised that he's big on martial arts. A Taekwondo black belt is nothing to sneeze at. And not learning to fight or play guitar are probably my two biggest regrets in life, so kudos to him. He also mentioned not loving social media, but he has created a Twitter account so that he can talk to people about the book and all that. Look him up under Taoist Professor. It will be in the show notes as well. I'm surprised that wasn't taken, but hey. He got it. (laughs) And if you like the first free hour of the show, the second hour was a serious deep dive into eugenics. And man, does he know a lot about the history and the players who have tried to bring aspects of it back and shoehorn it into society at many different points in the timeline. But we also talked about that drive to tie genetic data to a student ID and also digitizing healthcare databases to be merged with that student data. And we threw several other conspiratorial logs on the fire as well. You know the drill, thehiresidechats.com if you want to be a Plus member. I got a lot of archives of extra hours you've never heard. If you like the interviews we do around here, why not take the full dive? And with that, I am going to get out of here. I've done my part. Your move, robber baron, philanthropist, technocratic takeover tyrants, and agents of the school world order agenda. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight. Put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning. And families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. We're looking for the answer to questions never asked. So we come to the cartwood for the higher side chats. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. We try to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance 
The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance.